Today, we talk to two brothers and successful restaurateurs who pursued a dream to open a cool jazz and blues club in Portsmouth. They not only managed to launch Jimmy's Jazz and Blues Club during a pandemic, but now attract some of the biggest jazz talents in the country. Now that deserves some jazz hands. I'm Matt Mowry, editor of Business New Hampshire Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, founder and president of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. Matt, good, good morning. morning to you. Good, good day morning. to you. Uh, do you play it? I feel like I legitimately don't know this, but now I really want to based on our guest today. Do you play or have you played a musical instrument of any kind? I have not. I wish I had. Uh-huh. I was a chorus kid, oh. which is horrifying considering my singing voice. No, no, no. no. But Dulcet, uh, Dulcet. no, I have never tackled that. Really? But uh-huh. we made sure my kids did. So we what had they, two what in band. Playing? Yeah. Uh, my oldest uh, does the trombone cool. and my youngest the trumpet. So Those are tough. They are also really loud. Yes, they are. Yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. And, but I'm glad they're doing it. I'm uh-huh. not sure my youngest is going to stay with it, but my sure. oldest has been doing it since elementary school, and he's going to eighth grade, and he's got and a he's great band it. teacher, nice. and it's great to see. We we finally got back to concerts this year Mm -hmm. and it was just really Mm -hmm. great to see the kids and they've been putting all this hard work and you know you could tell they're proud the only the only downside has been when they first do training they they use what i call the devil's flute the recorder oh my god you can get through the recorder stage it's okay how about you um i let's see i played for probably like it, again, the whole element, you know, start in elementary school, like fourth or fifth grade thing, um, dropped it in like seventh grade, but I play the alto saxophone. Ooh. Um, and that was cool. Um, I don't know. It was, for me, I I think because it's so, there, it's so much about like the elemental pieces that you have to learn. But like, for me, I wanted it to be more exciting and I wanted it, you know, to, to, I don't know, learn more. So I was kind of, I got bored with it. I was like, uh, I, and I was not great at reading music either, of course, because I was like this little AD, ADHD, like fifth grader, <laughs> like, of course I can't read music, you know? Um, so yeah, there was a lot of me just like, you know, sitting up, per, you know, correctly, correct posture with the saxophone, just like looking like I'm doing something, but I wasn't. And it's funny. <laughs> it's I probably good though. My oldest took to it because he's a math kid. Oh. My youngest is not, uh-huh. and you know See, they say there's that either. connection. I wasn't and, either. You know, so. if you're mathematically inclined, you tend to be able to. Oh, that's that's, it, that's what the, I've heard okay. at least. Okay. I but anyway, anywho, while I don't play mm-hmm. a musical instrument, mm-hmm. I love music of all kind. Yeah. Um, if and, you could play, or if you if you, what's like one that you're like, oh man, I wish I could play that. Or piano. Anything. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I wish I was a piano player. Yeah. I feel like that should be part of like every child's elementary education learn how to play the piano because it comes in handy at the craziest times it does maybe and, you know, at a jazz and blues club for example we are lucky know. we have a lot of venues in the state for live music yeah. and i'm excited to learn a bit uh, to talk some more today uh, about one of the ex- new exciting ones to to come on yeah. online did anyone else smell a segue coming because i did that was great thank you for that our guests this week are michael and peter labrie brothers and co-owners of jimmy's jazz and blues club which after after extensive renovation was opened in September 2021. The brothers are also partners in the Atlantic Grill and the River House. Michael has a background in theatrical lighting and Peter is uh, in the restaurant industry, but that's only the tip of the iceberg. So Michael and Peter, welcome. Thank you. Glad mm-hmm. to be here. Yeah. And um, 
I think we'd be thrown out of here if we didn't ask you to both right away tell us about where you came from, how you grew up, and the paths that you chose that ultimately brought you together as business partners. You know, brothers to start, business partners as well. So um, maybe you both want to tackle that one and, and just tell us uh, sort of where you came from and how the heck you got to where to this table today, as it were. <laughs> well, we grew up in a entrepreneurial family, um, and so it was always sort of a, a family business uh, development. My father was a real estate developer, built apartment complexes, et cetera. And um, I, I'm eight years older than Peter, so, um, you know, I had a slightly different time frame than he did mm-hmm. uh, while my father was still working there. So I kind of followed in his footsteps, um, even though, you know, maybe I had some other uh, forces tugging at my heart. You know, I, I started uh, shooting photos at 12 years old, and so I really oh, cool. kind of had an artistic bent. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a grandmother, my father's mother, who was a, a world-renowned uh, primitive painter, uh, a la Grandma... Uh, Moses, you know, for a a simple reference Mm -hmm. point for your listeners. And so she was always uh, very supportive of uh, those tendencies that I had. And um, so that that stayed alive within me and um, slowly continued to emerge as I pursued, uh, you know, other parts of my career, uh, real estate, real estate development, et cetera. And then when Peter grew up. <laughs> do we ever do we ever grow up, though, <laughs> right? right? After uh, some of his uh, jobs that I'm sure he'll share with you, uh, he ended up joining my father and I in the, in the business, if you will. And, and it kind of went forward from there uh, with us blending our skills and talents to get us really to where we are today, owning um, three restaurants and and Jimmy's Jazz and Blues Club. Uh, so, Peter, what was your path? What Where did you initially take your career? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> ever since I was a kid, uh, I have notebooks going back to junior high with restaurant ideas. Uh, it was something that was just always in my blood, but... Uh, same grandmother who was the the primitive artist actually had a restaurant that I never had the pleasure of stepping foot in, mm. but I always heard about it growing up. And uh, I always had this passion for either opening or, or working in the hospitality field. Mm. Um, when I was in high school or just out of high school, my father always wanted to get his pilot's license. And when he hit 50, he finally was in a point in his life where he could uh, follow that dream and cool. he got his license and I started flying around with him and I caught the bug. Yeah. <laughs> so next thing you know, I'm leaving uh, University of New England to go down to flight school in Florida. And I graduated uh, from flight school uh, within a year and found myself out in Alaska flying planes for a couple of years. And uh 
I, I figured out real quick that uh, being a glorified bus driver, you know, being that, that airline pilot wasn't yep. really something that uh, I was going to want to go into long term. Sure. So I wound up coming home and uh, got into uh, corporate sales, software sales, did that for about 10 years and uh, finally wanted to get out of that. And mm-hmm. I started to get into the restaurant industry. Timing did not work out uh, for the restaurant that I was looking at the t- at the time. And I wound up joining uh, my father and my brother in the, the real estate world and bought, you know, bided my time until this opportunity came up. And I looked at Mike and I said, this is a great opportunity. It's what I've always wanted to do. Let's, let's go for it. And what was the attraction to the restaurant industry? Because, I mean, it's a notoriously tough industry. It's such a high failure rate. And obviously, you two know what you're doing because you've got these three great successful entities going. But what made you want to take the initial dive into it? It's, uh, you have to have a passion for it. Uh, I always, it, it's, it's an extension of sales. Uh, and that's when I went into the corporate world. I was doing sales. Uh, hospitality truly is sales. Um, and I always loved it. Um, you know, getting into the industry originally, uh, we, we had an opportunity with a a restaurant that is already there. So it had kind of a, a base, but, uh, we totally redesigned that, that space and, and made it, uh, what it is today, the river house. Mm -hmm. Um, and give our, our listeners an idea of what the river house is. Riverhouse is a uh, about 300-seat waterfront restaurant, uh, seafood restaurant, right on the Piscataqua River, downtown Portsmouth. Uh, it uh, high volume. We do, you know, upwards of 12 to 1400 covers a day. Wow! Uh, and uh, we've got a, a phenomenal staff there, uh, from our general manager uh, Justin Rivlin and our executive chef uh, Ryan Pinkham. Uh, I mean, they they go to battle every day. Uh, down on the waterfront. And the first restaurant, was that a success right away? Was there a learning curve? What was that like? And what led you to open the second restaurant? It was definitely a learning curve. Uh, When we first opened, we opened with about 120 to 130 seats. Uh, But this is where, you know, Mike and I's talents kind of melded together because Mike has this great way of thinking outside the box and envisioning different ways to... uh, increase our efficiencies and our size. Uh, We first expanded across into a retail space and took over uh, another building next to the river house. And then Mike had this grand vision of, you know, you picture those balconies that you see down in New Orleans Mm -hmm. that are all over the place. Uh, He had this vision for this balcony going out over the front of the building towards the water. and when he first proposed it, I was like, there's no way you're going to get that push through uh, Portsmouth. <laughs> but uh, again, that's yeah. where his you know, expertise comes in. And he got this thing approved. And now we have one of the most exciting, best views in town. And so the second restaurant, can you, when did that open and, and what is that like? Was it about six, six years or so after we opened the River House? Uh, at, at least. Uh, it was in... Uh, December of 2013 or 14, and we opened River House in 09, which originally I agreed to uh, partner with Peter on that. Um, we were taking over a, sp- uh, a space, as he indicated, 
that had been a tenant of ours mm -hmm. for 20 or so years. Uh, an important aspect of success in the restaurant business is owning the real estate that mm -hmm. you're operating in. Yeah. And so really my um, experience as a commercial real estate broker and doing leasing and, and developing um, is, is what really helped us, um, as Peter indicated. Um, but initially, I thought, okay, let's take over this, this restaurant, uh, which had been the stockpot, which... Uh, Was this an easy sell on his part to you? I mean, you know, to say, hey, we should get into the restaurant industry well, now. Well, no, no, no because no. I, I thought, <laughs> no, because I did, there's no way I wanted to be, you know, I was envisioning, okay, I'm up at two in the morning closing mm -hmm. these bars down. I said, that's not really how I want to live. And so I figured, okay, let's, let's renovate this space. Let's get it cleaned up. Let's get it reopened. We'll operate it for a year and then we'll sell it. And then I'm out. Well, that was four restaurants <laughs> ago. Last words. Well, and, yeah, and 13 my, years ago. My so father and Mike that. tried to talk me out of opening a restaurant for probably close to 10 years before I finally was like twisted their arms hard enough to say, look at this opportunity. Mm. I mean, I had spreadsheets. I had everything all done up going, look, look. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> These are paper. the numbers yeah. we can do. We can do this. Cool. And, uh, you know, I I was truly, like he's saying, he didn't want to be there at, at 1 o'clock in the morning. And for the first four or five years, I was there almost every day, boots on the ground, you know, doing dishes, uh, cleaning up the messes in the bathrooms that people love to leave behind. Uh you know, dealing with the septic issues, the grease traps. Um, but again, it's a passion that I had. And, you know, you know, I was there this past weekend dealing with a ugly issue. <laughs> um, and I had servers and bartenders and stuff walking by just like floored to see the owner down there on his knees arms deep in something that they would not touch. Ah, the glamour of a yeah, restaurant. That's, right. that's exactly right. what I said. I was like, let's open a restaurant. It'll be fun. Uh, <laughs> It'll be fun, they said. Yeah, that was a quote I said to uh, our original Great. chef, Jerry Walsh, uh, who I knew for, for, I don't know, five, ten years before we actually opened the restaurant. Um, I went and found him where he was working, and I was like, remember what we talked about five years ago? It's time. I found mm. a place that we're going to open a restaurant. And he's, he just shook his head and no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to have the passion and you clearly do. I mean, just even in, in the way that you talk about it. So it's you, you got to have the passion. Um, and, and really the key, I think, to uh, Peter and our success as a partnership mm -hmm. is that we come with completely different skill sets. And yeah. Peter was willing to take that grind wheel end of things, uh, you know, as far as operations. And I was able to, you know, do financing, permitting, construction, you know, planning, design and all that stuff. And so together, uh, it, it really works out and, and has, um, and, and we love each other and we work well together and respect each other. So those are all important. Walk us through when you decided, you know what Portsmouth needs? A jazz and blues club, which is not something a lot of people would have undertaken. So what made you want to do this and what made you believe in this vision? I had actually had this idea for about 40 years. Uh, as, as you had 
mentioned earlier, I had a background in theater and concert lighting, uh, starting in high school, college, and then I did it professionally just out of college, but knew I didn't want to be touring and having living that life. Yep. Um, so it just remained in the back of my head for a long time. I had um, gone to uh, Paris and uh, enjoyed a show at Le Moulin Rouge mm-hmm. um, with my first wife back in the 80s. And at that point, I saw, wow, this is kind of like a dinner theater, a cabaret. This is a very cool concept. And so really since that time, you know, I didn't, we didn't have the resources at that point to really try to put something like that together. But since that time in looking at real estate in Portsmouth and, and trying to envision a building, a location that could serve that purpose, and then especially after we had already been into two restaurants and, and figured out that, you know, we can do this, we know how to operate the food and beverage side of things, we can put together a staff, and, and we know how to build out properties. Uh, this opportunity literally dropped out of the sky into our lap, wow. and we found ourselves at 530 the next morning after we get a phone call going through this building and the top three floors of this building hadn't been occupied since 1959 and Whoa. hadn't been touched in all that time. It's like a time This castle. was a former Y? It was correct? a former YMCA. It was built in 1904. It was only the second YMCA in the country at that time. It was designed by a very important architect. And they spent a lot of money building this building out. They spent $35,000 on it, which I'm sure was a lot of money back yeah, in the right. day. Adjusted for inflation, it probably was a and heck of a lot of money. And had some beautiful architectural elements. But Peter and I found ourselves up in that space, and my jaw dropped, and I knew immediately that this was it. And so this is a brick building that's in the heart of Portsmouth. Yes, uh, and prime real estate, right? Yes. I mean, you're not going to find a lot of opportunities like it, that it, in, you know, this entertainment restaurant hub. If we didn't get it, it would be condos right now. Right. Oh, boy. So when you looked at this building, what spoke to you about this is the place to open our dream? And then describe the investment you made. What, what did you bring to fruition as a vision? Well... <laughs> so to say there's a wide open question yeah well the the, um, the space as I had said it had really been untouched since it was originally designed and built in 1904 the top three floors so it still had the original performance space with 21 foot ceilings oh my the original proscenium arch the original 18 foot arch top stained glass windows oh in goodness. that space wow uh, on and on. And the original electrical, the original <laughs> plumbing, the original. <laughs> right. Yeah, all of the ugly stuff too, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. you got to look at all of that stuff. Oh, my goodness. So really our original plan was far less lofty than what we ended up with. Mm. I guess we, along the way, lost the ability to say no. <laughs> and um, we, we, we ended up, you know, with spending a lot more than we originally anticipated, but it all seemed right, and it all seemed to make sense. We did say no a lot. You know, we had to. Um, but 
I think it was more on color choices than it was. Uh... <laughs> color choices were easy. It was a matter of whether we want to spend another million dollars to take out these two posts, which might cause a sightline issue. Oh, you know, gosh. Uh, and we had taken out two such posts under the balcony, but left those in. Sometimes we regret it, but you know, these are the you know decisions that must be made in yeah. order to uh, finally bake that cake. Mm-hmm. So. Let's walk listeners through the, the this club because it's not just you know you, you walk in and it, you sit not down like for live music. I mean, dark, this is an man. experience you've created. So correct me when I get wrong or jump in. But as you come into the the, the main area, you've got this wonderful stage in in, in one area of it, and it's a, a, this large room with cocktail tables. Very intimate, uh, with lighting on it. I mean, to me, it feels like you kind of stepped into the twenties. You know what you think of that high end Great Gatsby area. That was guiding us uh, to a large extent. Yeah, the thought of uh, the Great Gatsby era, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the the funny thing was not funny, but we went into this pandemic similar to what happened back then, and Mm. people emerged and were ready for the. Roaring Twenties yeah. and and for jazz. And that was really the birth of jazz occurred at that same time. So we had a lot of kind of deco elements in the building that we preserved, but we didn't make it crazy deco. You know, we just uh, kept it simple and elegant. Um, but... But there was a lot, of th- the, the thought that you put into this space is pretty incredible because then off of that, you kept these... He- Huge windows, floor-to-ceiling windows. I don't know if they were there or you installed them. They were there. And you create a bar space in there. Okay, so the glass windows outside, the exterior glass windows. That's new. That whole bar that you're describing was brand new. Right. We put that steel and glass, modern steel and glass addition onto the back of this classic, um, you know, brick building. Yeah. And uh, what we did on the front of the building uh, is what enamored the historic uh, district committee uh, enough to allow us to have our way with the back of the building. We completely stripped and rebuilt the facade of that building the way it had been originally in 1904. And that was a a major gift to the streetscape and to the city. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have two lounge areas with overstuffed leather seats and artwork that you've cultivated, fireplaces. I mean, you've created some, in addition to this wonderful entertainment area where you can sit down, have cocktails and your meal and watch this great jazz, you create, you know, a very modern bar in one end. You've got two more intimate um, lounge and bar areas there. We should say these are this that main area is on the second floor, so you have views over the city of Portsmouth, which isn't too shabby. <laughs> um, and then, in addition to that, you have another level where the balconies, where people can either have additional seating with, or rent out a private space where they can mm. make a little noise because it's partitioned off, but still a view of the entertainment. So tell me also, there's a very modern aspect to this. You invested a lot of technology. Can you talk about how you ensured that no matter where you are in the space, that you can see what's going on with the entertainment? There, were, there was a lot of planning, a lot of high tech, and it was really a, a five-year design build, wow. which 
is really what allowed us to to have a tremendous product at the end because we were able to build this essentially out of pocket rather than if you if you go to a bank normally and you have to borrow the entire amount mm-hmm. you have to complete all your construction documents up front so you're kind of nailed into those designs but really at that point you really have no idea what your needs are and it continues to evolve right over uh, of course especially over the initial 3 year period 4 year period but our experience with both the river house and the atlantic grill mm-hmm. led us to understand movable walls and flexible spaces which was v- mm-hmm. really key to the design and execution of that space and we learned an awful lot about those technologies uh, in, in building those spaces out. Yeah, I mean, a, a big percentage of our original business plan when we were looking at these spaces was the corporate, the wedding, mm-hmm. and the private events. Um, and now we have a, a salesperson who is selling, you know, to all these different rooms. And you hit a key word earlier, you know, intimate. Mm-hmm. All these spaces have the ability to be able to close these rooms down and create these intimate little nooks. So you can come in there and have, you know, eight, 10, 20 people in a room for a birthday party during a show, but you feel like you have your, you you do actually, you don't just feel like you have your own little room. And if they get noisy, we just close the doors. (laughs) Um, But it's been a great, uh, great other side to the the music business. And then if folks are off in like the bar, the lounge areas, is there, what have you set up to ensure that they're able to still enjoy concert. Yeah, one of one of the biggest challenges we had in creating these intimate spaces was sightline issues in some of the in the especially in the sky bar or upstairs in the L's balcony. Um, because the sight lines aren't exactly perfect. So we have eight cameras in the room with a full broadcast studio next door that if you don't have perfect sight lines, you have an L C D panel in the room so you have perfect sound mm-hmm. and now you have a a great view of the the artists on stage uh, and the gentleman or the young lady down in the recording studio is mixing those cameras in and out and having, you know, tight shots of the pianist's hands at one point or up close on the guitarist's strings when he's doing a solo. So I find myself sometimes, and I've got a great seat in the back of the room, don't get me wrong, but I find myself looking through the windows into the, the sky bar and watching the TV, even though I'm, I'm 30, <laughs> 40 feet from the, from the musician, yeah. just because what they're, being, what they're able to show on the mm-hmm. screen, mm-hmm. you just can't see. I don't care how close you get. You just can't see these angles. Right, right. So it's, it's pretty incredible. Right. You've, right. Thought of, you've thought of everything, for sure. Um, I want to I wanna ask, though, and, and um, you mentioned earlier L's, um, and, of course, the club is called Jimmy's, uh, and those are not just arbitrary names. Those are important people in your lives. Can you talk about where... Um, the naming of the spaces and, and the club itself came from. Right. So in, initially, um, we had decided to name the club Els after our mother, our beloved mother, Ellen Labrie, who is still with us. And we, you know, set out to secure our branding and, and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, lo and behold, L Magazine Oh. Decided, no, we were a threat. We were a threat to them. Interesting. <laughs> and uh, you know, apparently they 
that's part of their MO is they uh, aggressively defend their their brand name. Yeah. And so that's what they did. And, and we found that we couldn't fight them for two years and spend $100,000 right. to secure that. So it was a lot easier to change the name. We maintained the L's brand as an interior brand in our VIP suite upstairs. So We'd already made the signs. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, were you we, surprised by that? Did that yeah, we were astounded you? and we thought, oh, we can talk to them and explain it to them, but that it's they, totally different just, than what we, they're we, doing. we sent them a very long, nicely written letter explaining the significance of, you know, L being my father's nickname for my mother back when they met and this whole thing, thinking they were going to be like, oh, that's so sweet. Go ahead. No. <laughs> Not so Corporate much. lawyers don't say that. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you you pivoted to Jimmy's. Can you talk about that? Right. So, you know, we had thought about different names and, and uh, what direction we should go in. And, and uh, it didn't take too long for us to uh, come up with Jimmy's, uh, which uh, our father... Uh, was Jim or James as an adult, but as a growing up, yep. he was a Jimmy, mm-hmm. and some of his uh, his contemporary peers still called him Jimmy, even at eighty years old. Uh, so we we went we went with Jimmy's, and um, we f- we find that it's kind of an endearing name. Everyone knows a Jimmy, you know. Yeah, I can think of a couple right now. Yeah, and so. That's the direction we went in, and it's worked out for us. When, when did you open? We opened in September of 2021. So let's talk about that year preceding it, <laughs> when all venues, hospitality, entertainment shut down, and you are getting towards the tail end of this huge investment you're making to, to open up an untested jazz club uh, or jazz and blues club. Were there any points where you thought we got to pull the plug and what ultimately kept you going? Well, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was getting pretty nervous. I mean, we had been forced to shutter two of our restaurants at the beginning when Mm -hmm. people didn't know really what to do with this COVID. Um, So... And, and I'm the one that's kind of responsible for keeping everything glued together financially. And uh, I, I really was getting very panicked for a period of a week or two. And I, I was really imagine, thinking, yeah. well, maybe this is what we need to do is just put a pin in this. And um, who knows what would have happened to the project if we had done that. But we didn't end up doing that. And we, we uh, kept moving forward and... And uh, we survived that. Um, But there's all sorts of issues that came out of the pandemic, supply chain issues, being able to get, you know, HVAC uh, equipment, uh, being able to get these PTZ cameras, you know, all sorts of this high tech stuff. Being able to get employees. (laughs) <laughs> employees, although that's been a little bit easier for Jimmy's because everyone wants to work there. But, <laughs> See, uh, it, it was difficult. And really the most, the biggest challenge in that last year that you inquire about was with the city of Portsmouth. The inspections departments were melting down just like, you know, uh, a lot of other uh, 
workers everywhere. And so we just couldn't get inspections. We mm-hmm. needed to wrap this up. We, we you know, you, you got to start booking these artists right. uh, six months to a year out. So we, if we didn't hit the mark for these advertised shows and get open and get a CO and get the city to stop dragging their feet, they ended up working with us and coming through for us if they're listening. <laughs> thank you. Thank I don't you, want to alienate them. <laughs> <laughs> Other projects coming up. Let's yeah. not uh, burn a bridge. <laughs> but it was very, it was very uh, scary there for a while because we would have, you know, been burning $200,000 a week, wow. uh, which can't do that for too long. No, no. So, um, so actually, you mentioned this uh, earlier, and in, in either of you can answer this, but in terms of the musicians and, and booking these musicians, um, you've got an amazing lineup, uh, you know, even, even now and into the future. Two questions. Well, I guess the big one is, how do you get these guys? Like, do you have a, do you have a team of people that you're working with agents? Like, how do you get folks like someone recently that was there, Herbie Hancock to come and play in Portsmouth at the, you know, at Jimmy's jazz and blues club. That's amazing. Um, and then you have to tell us the story about the piano after that. Uh, but let's get into the, yeah, as the an, details as an unknown club in Podunk, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Right. Uh, you know, we weren't really sure uh, how we were going to be able to book music, but, uh, just through happenstance, we uh, made a connection with uh, Susan Bursette, uh, who has been in the industry since she was in her teens. And uh, she is continuously blowing our minds in regards to the contacts he ha- that she has and, cool. you know, the inroads that she has. And she, you know, oh, you want him? Oh, yeah, I know his booking agent. I, you know, <laughs> And, you know, Herbie Hancock was one of those ones that from day one, she, oh, we can get Herbie Hancock. Okay. And uh, <laughs> my my uh, brother-in-law is a huge Herbie Hancock fan, and he actually came to the concert when uh, Herbie came in last month. And I looked at him, and I was like, you didn't really think we were going to get Herbie Hancock, did you? He, she, he was like, there was no way in hell you guys were going to get Herbie Hancock to yeah. come to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, Susan Bursette has been able to uh, deliver on uh, some amazing Amazing artists. We had Wynton cool. Marsalis uh, just this past weekend. Uh, we got Pat Matheny coming this Ooh. September, uh, which are all great, but I'm more of a blues guy. So I, I okay. still migrate more over to the harmonica and mm-hmm. the, the horns. And, mm-hmm. uh, but we've, uh, we've, we've had a, a great mix. Uh, it's one of the funnest things about coming to the club as much as we do is from night to night, the shows are so dramatically different and the cool. demographics that are walking through the door are so dramatically different that uh, the experience from one night to the next is totally different. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lot of Love fun. It. How have musicians um, reacted to this? Oh, I want, them, I want them to, I'm cutting you off because I oh, want sorry. them to tell a really quick, fun, perhaps fun story. I saw it on the news, so maybe a lot of people know about it, but Herbie Hancock's piano. Yeah. <laughs> that was made this very like, stressful month. Ah. <laughs> All right, explain this. Like, what happened? It was too big to fit in. Yeah, a couple couple the weeks regular before way. a couple weeks before the show, we were sitting down going over the rider, which is mm. basically all the different details of the uh, the artist's uh, equipment and sure. what they require to come into the, the the club. And we're start realizing that this Fazioli piano, which is almost ten feet long won't fit in the elevator like our Steinway did. We have a brand new Steinway sitting up on stage, Steinway B, mm-hmm. uh, with Spirio. Um, 
and it wouldn't come up the stairs. It was in a box that was 10 feet long, six feet tall, 26 inches wide. Oh, wow. And we finally figured out, looking at the third story window, that, well, <laughs> that window is about the same dimensions. And uh, we, oh. we wound up having to take a third story window out. We had to coordinate with uh, Ben Auger, who was the builder, ABC uh, Builders, uh, to come back in, take the window out, coordinate with a lull, which is a very, you know, piece of heavy construction equipment, and figure out how to strap this, you know, 2,000-pound box with a $300,000 piano in it oh my goodness. to this construction bucket and thread the needle mm-hmm. after we closed down Congress Street uh, through a third-story window. <laughs> wow. Right. So you were popular that day. Yep. Well, <laughs> everyone, there was actually, the street was full of people watching and videotaping. Oh, my God, I bet. And um, we actually had, like, you know, a whole crew of piano movers and everything else, you know, putting that through there. Um, and the, the funny thing is, it wasn't funny, it was very stressful we could not get any insurance coverage on that piano oh. to go from the ground oh, into the window. Oh, my goodness. So we either called off the four shows. Right. Or Peter and I just took took a flyer, and we said, yeah. go. And, and we, that could, we could have taken a million-dollar hit if that thing ended up oh, yeah. in shreds on the, the sidewalk. It didn't, and that good, was fantastic. Well, you, know, you know, everybody down on the street, you know, it was like NASCAR. They, yeah, they were like, just waiting for the crash. Right, yeah. <laughs> but the funny thing is, uh, Herbie got Herbie was being uh, FaceTimed live watching his piano oh, go up by, by his tour manager who was standing on the street. And uh, some of the videos that were posted on our site, uh, Herbie posted onto his private social media page and within the first week it received 300,000 views oh my wow. goodness so wow. this whole f- fiasco or yep. show <laughs> sure. ended up being an amazing pr bonanza i would say so that's amazing yeah yeah well and you didn't drop it on the street so that and helps. we did not yeah we we, we <laughs> aged about uh, eight years it was uh, very stressful yeah but, uh, it was stressful wow and that's not the only interesting piano factoid uh the house piano isn't there yeah, something the interesting about that well the, the the house piano we went down to new york city uh mike and i and our wives and, and suzanne uh, and suzanne thank you um and we actually got a tour of the Steinway factory, which was just unbelievable. I mean, it's it's just massive, and they build these things by hand. Uh, and some of the people that are working there, you know, they introduce you to this, you know, these women that have been working there for 30 years, yeah. 40 years. I mean, this is what they've done for their entire lives. That's a craft. Wow. Um, and then we went into a, a sound room, and they had three identical Steinway B pianos sitting side by side by side. And uh, we were able to bring our own uh, pianist in with us. Uh, do you right. remember his name? Yes, I knew you were going to ask. A pause for it. Yeah, I just um, read his name. Uh, but but he was he was amazing. He got down there, and it took him an hour and twenty minutes of going back and forth between the three pianos. Really? And he was talking about the different nuances, the different you know actions, and which one he thought would age better than the others. Mm-hmm. Um, and he finally settled on one piano. We were asked to leave the room. They switched the pianos around. He came back in. Oh my goodness. 
played on each one of them and went, yep, that's the one. And he picked the same piano again. I could have gone up there with a ball peen hammer and hit the, you know, I couldn't have told the difference <laughs> on one key to the next. Uh, but he did an amazing job. And uh, one of the coolest things was this Steinway has a Spirio system uh, built into it, mm-hmm. which is like a modern day version of a recorder piano, but it's all electronic. Oh, it's wow. all embedded you know, underneath everything so it doesn't affect the actuation of the piano. So mm-hmm. you can play it like a normal grand piano. But like after, do you get his name? Not yet. <laughs> Working uh, hard over there. After he was done, it was recording. So they just hit a button and it replayed his entire, uh, you know, the songs he was playing and, and little ditties that he was playing. Uh, but the coolest thing is, you know, I, they have uh, Steinway has over the years uh, digitized like 30 or 40 or 50 different jazz masters or blues, you know, masters so that we can play any of their concerts live by hitting a button. Oh, my goodness. It's all controlled by an iPad. And you just hit a button and all of a sudden the piano starts and the keys are moving. Oh, wow. I mean, it's, it's incredible because it's actually playing the piano. It has so you little... have a catalog, essentially, of all these great blues and jazz musicians yes. stored in this piano. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Uh, by the so, way, the pianist was Sullivan Fortner. Sullivan Fortner. Oh, sorry, wow. sorry, Sullivan. <laughs> but the, the fun part is that we could have, say, for example, Herbie playing on the Steinway, which, mm-hmm. of course, he won't because he insists on playing on his Fazioli. Uh, at our club or choose some other pianist. And then it could be playing simultaneously on all these other Steinways around the world that are similarly equipped with this. So it will simultaneously play the exact notes in this exact measure and uh, that is and fascinating. Wait. Oh, my goodness. Well, now you have plans that go well beyond bringing people into the club and finding a wider audience for, for this. Can you talk about some of the subscription models or live cast uh, models that you are considering? So uh, both of those, uh, we, we have been beta testing our streaming capabilities for about four months now and uh they're very very high quality you know we have those eight uh 4k ptz cameras and the broadcast suite set up next door so and and we send those out to uh, a group of about 20 to 30 people every single night that are able to watch them in their homes and you would think you were watching the grammys or or something along these lines because of the, the quality. So, you know, within the next few months, uh, it's we need to work on setting up a, a monetizing platform and a subscription platform, but all of the technical aspects are there uh, on our end. And then um, you want to talk about the memberships, Peter, the inner circle? Sure, yeah. We, we have uh, three different tiers of membership, the inner circles uh, get, uh, I think it's uh, five days early ticket purchase, mm-hmm. so they can actually come in and you know if a show gets announced, they have first crack at being able to get the best seats on the on the floor. Uh, we actually have some inner circle members that uh, purchase two memberships so they can control eight seats on the floor, um, and that, and that's a five thousand dollar subscription fee annually. Wow, and. Um, they also get lots of other benefits, cool. special yeah. Yeah. tasting dinners. and 
Yeah, we just did a whiskey tasting for uh, some of the Inner Circle members. Uh, 10 or 12 of them came before a show, an hour and a half or so before the show. And uh, Kobe, our bar manager, had these phenomenal whiskeys that were all set up. And we're talking, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 dollars a shot, half shot for the, these whiskeys. They're really super high end. And uh, so they had a little moosh bouche, you know, a little tasting of food and then a little whiskey. Mm. And he talked about the history and the nuances of the whiskey. Um, and he actually just did a custom uh, bottle with a Maker's Mark specifically oh, for Jimmy's. Yep. Um, and he, Kobe is just super, super into all these, uh, you know, higher end uh, whiskeys and we have uh, over 300 bottles of wine on our wine list. Uh, we're actually applied for our Wine Spectator, uh, you know, a membership. Um, but uh, it's it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun with the Inner Circle members and being able to get to know right. some of these guys. Yeah, and they they uh, you know get to have special meet and greets you know, with the artists and parties and things of that nature. But then the next level down is... And they, don't forget they have a private entrance. They have a private entrance. Of course they do. They have do. a little, little yeah. door code. They come in the back way. They don't have to wait in line. They just come back up. But there then it's go. a steep drop down from that $5,000 membership to $240 annually, which is, you know, a lot more affordable. And it still allows people to get on like uh, two days, you know, three days before the public can buy. So... Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really good deal. People can get, uh, you know, make sure that they're going to get decent uh, decent seats. Yeah, sure. And the cool. vast majority of your shows have been selling out from the very beginning. Is that right? That's right. The majority of them sell out. Love it. Love it. Well, we I feel like we could keep going. There's so much <laughs> more to talk about. But, of course, our listeners, you know... Who knows? Maybe they maybe they'd stick around, maybe not. But um, it's been really, really amazing to have you guys to really dig into um, more than you know, more than just you opened a club with a that has happens to serve food and booze. There's passion. There's experience here. The two of you obviously, you know, dovetail really well together in your skill set and your and your passions, as it were. And um, it's amazing. So thank you for for everything you you do in the restaurant industry, but also that you've done for Portsmouth and 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 all of that. Um, it's, it's great to get to know you even a little bit. So thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Well, great. Th- thank, thank you very you. much. And uh, can I just say happy anniversary to my wife? Of course you can. <laughs> Absolutely. July 12th. There it is. Yeah. Well, I told her this yesterday. I was like, oh, by the way, I, I got to go to Amherst tomorrow morning. She's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So happy anniversary, Maria. There it is. Mm, cool. Thank you for lending him. Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Thanks again, guys. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And now the buzz. So Nathan mm. came across another study here. Okay. And this one was interesting because it focuses on mental health in the mm. workplace. So important. So uh, according to this, which came out from SHRM, which is the Society for uh, HR Management, yeah. um, about 83% of U.S. workers suffer from work-related stress. Oh, and as a result, businesses lose up to 300 billion dollars annually that's insane. as a result of the stress that is crazy it's amazing and partially avoidable <laughs> yes uh, well and here's the disturbing part is that the study found that despite this huge cost to workers mental health and the cost to the business mm-hmm. fewer than one in three employers yeah. view mental health support as a top priority right now right 33 percent. right so they their organization hadn't thought about offering resources like come right. on what like hello 
<laughs> if you're out there, hello. Right. Uh, it's so, so, so important. We've talked about it, you know, um, with with our guest today uh, about how we recharge or how we step away. Um, and it's 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 things like that. It, it doesn't have to be going to see a counselor or or, or whatnot. It's just like you know. It, it, wow. Um, well, I, and I it's just so, am sort of blown away that that's right. <laughs> that statistic is there. Well, because one of the things I think we have to realize is that you know there's a range, a spectrum of mm. mental health and yes. mental health issues, right, right. and that we've all been holding it together for two years yeah. under. I hate the term, but unprecedented times, right? Yeah. You know, we've been trying to get work done. We've been trying to get our kids, you know, educated and yeah. then back to school. We've been trying to figure out camps and, yeah. you know. Four million uh, just, of us have been starting new businesses. You know, Exactly. On, right? You know, for those that are single, they're trying to figure out the dating world and making those connections. And yeah. it's just a lot. And, it you is. know, we spend so much time at work, whether we're physically at work or not. Mm. It, it does need to, to be, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a workplace issue. And I, I don't think it's that businesses are necessarily, um, don't care about this issue. Because one of the interesting finds that 27% of uh, people that mm. were uh, interviewed for this indicated their company's just unsure which benefits to provide. Right, right. So there clearly needs to be some industry guidance and some leadership right. and, and, you know, from whether it's benefit companies or health insurance, health care, or the, you know, the HR EAPs uh, management. are a great place to start. Employee yeah. assistance programs. Right. They're low cost um, and they're, they're different EAP programs yep. and they're easy enough to research and they provide this resource for your employees to go to from everything from mental health yeah. issues to child care issues to um, elder care issues, right. uh, financial. All the things that All of that we, to connect them to the resources that they need. That we face, but that would inevitably, you know, as it were, quote unquote, get in the way of our workday, right? right? So why not have the employer be a partner in just saying, you know what, we know that life gets in the way and things are happening and that you need to talk to the kids or you need to, you know, figure this out during the day because that's when the doctor's available, for example. Um, so why not be an integrated system, as it were, an integrated part of the employee's life to help figure this stuff out. You right. Know, give those resources. Nothing well, wrong with that. Reach out to your local hospital. Yeah. A lot of them yeah. have these programs in place where they can bring someone in to discuss issues mm -hmm. and then point out resources. You can make it a lunch and learn program. Yeah. That's another great thing. Love it. Bring speakers in once a month mm -hmm. as a lunch and learn bag lunch. Sure. And, and you know, whether it's a yoga instructor or someone that's a mental health professional, a financial advisor, you know, those mm -hmm. see All what the your things that stress us out, right? right? What are your employees right. pain points? And then, you know, it doesn't have to cost a lot or take no, a lot of time to connect that's them to the, the resources right. they need. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what we're buzzing about this week. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. Check out the Cardinal blog and learn about our services at cardinalconsultingnh.com. We're on social at Cardinal Consulting NH. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a joint production of Business New Hampshire Magazine and Cardinal Consulting.